0: Many congregations have a tradition of an election sermon on the Sunday before Election Day. In all the tension, excitement, and hype before an election, reflecting thoughtfully about how our religious values inform our engagement with the democratic process seems appropriate. In contrast, I don't know of that many congregations that have a tradition of a post-election sermon. But perhaps a few words are in order this morning in the wake of election 2012. Now my interest is not in partisanship, but in reflecting on what happened and where do we go from here in light of our Unitarian Universalist tradition. Unitarian Universalists care about how to create unity out of diversity. But as I studied the electoral map, as many of you probably did um, on Tuesday night and Wednesday, the divisions of our country remain stark, with a large swath of red states cutting across significant patches of blue states. The words that came to mind as I looked at this visual representation of our electorate were those from Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address that you heard read earlier. Lincoln took the oath of office for his first term as the 16th President of the United States on March 4th, 1861. But only weeks earlier, Jefferson Davis had been inaugurated as the President of the Confederate States of America. The first shots of what would become the American Civil War were not to be fired until the next month's assault on Fort Sumter. In South Carolina on April 12, 1861. But in early March, a newly inaugurated President Lincoln spoke a plea for reconciliation. He said again, we are not enemies, but friends. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory Stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell with the chorus of union. When again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. The newly reelected President Obama sounded a similar note of reconciliation at the end of his acceptance speech early Wednesday morning, for those of you who stayed awake long enough to hear it. He said, I believe we can seize this future together because we are not as divided as our politics suggest. We are not as cynical as the pundits believe. We are greater than the sum of our individual ambitions and we remain more than a collection of red states and blue states. We are forever and will be the United States of America. At the same time, as President Lincoln discovered And as President Obama's first term has demonstrated, calling for unity is easier than the often frustrating work of bringing one out of many. To which our motto, E Pluribus Unum, aspires. And if President Obama's latest chorus of the union is to be more than mere rhetoric, the better angels of our nature will indeed need to emerge. In the wake of this election, however, there is evidence of at least one place in which the better angels of our nature continue to emerge, and that's the increasing support in our country for same-sex marriage. With the passage of Question 6 in Maryland, same-sex marriages will be able to be legally celebrated in this and other sanctuaries across the state no later than January fourth, 2013. Happy New Year. And the final tally was close enough that arguably the difference was made in passage through the involvement of individuals and groups such as the UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland in phone banking, in working the polls, in having simple, humane conversations. I know many of you were a part of various aspects of that. The passage of this referendum reaffirms the critical work of social change that many of you have been and continue to do is vitally necessary. Thank you. We should also celebrate that Maine and Washington passed similar measures. As President of the Unitarian Universalist Association, Peter Morales, said on Wednesday, these victories, along with the defeat of discriminatory anti- the discriminatory anti-marriage amendment in Minnesota, clearly indicate that more and more Americans realize that the freedom to marry strengthens families, protects Children and ensures the basic rights of citizenship for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens. On a related note of inclusion, on Tuesday, the citizens of Wisconsin elected our nation's first openly lesbian senator, Tammy Baldwin. Our congregation has for many years been part of the Unitarian Universalist Association's welcoming congregation program to promote and celebrate the inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and members. And we should celebrate the ways these inclusive values are increasingly found in our culture at large. Of similar significance, especially given the focus in this congregation and in the Unitarian Universalist Association this past year on immigration justice, question four in Maryland supporting the DREAM Act also won even broader support than same-sex marriage. The passage of both the DREAM Act and marriage equality remind me of the final line of the sermon that I preached here in early September on immigration justice. May you be blessed with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world, that together we can do what others claim cannot be done. Now much work remains to be done to reach that lofty UU6 principle of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. But it's important to celebrate the vital victories along the way. When love wins, when peace prevails, When the marginalized are included, we need to pause and savor that moment and celebrate it. From the perspective of Unitarian Universalism, which values the wisdom of all the world's religions, it's further noteworthy that on Tuesday, Hawaii elected our nation's first Buddhist senator, Maisie Hirono. Hirono is also the first Asian American woman elected to the Senate. In addition, the 2nd Congressional District of Hawaii elected our first Hindu member of Congress, Tulsi Gabbard. Significantly on this Veterans Day, our new Hindu-American representative-elect Gabbard is also an Iraq War veteran. These moves towards religious pluralism in our nation are significant parallels to our Unitarian Universalist practice of drawing not from one source, but from six sources in shaping our life together. Along these lines, notice how Representative-elect Gabbard describes herself religiously. She says, I identify as a Hindu, but I'm much more into spirituality than I am into religious labels. In that sense, I'm a Hindu in the mold of the most famous Hindu, Mahatma Gandhi, who is my hero and role model. I was raised in a multicultural, multi-race, multi-faith family, that allowed me to spend a lot of time studying and contemplating both the Bhagavad Gita and the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. My attempts to work for the welfare of others and for the planet is at the core of my spiritual practice. Also, every morning I take time to remember my relationship with God through the practice of yoga meditation and reading verses from the Bhagavad Gita. From the perspective of the Gita, The spiritual path I have described is known to many as karma yoga or bhakti yoga. As I read this description, I couldn't help thinking of that old UU slogan, you might be a Unitarian Universalist and not know it. Said differently, I celebrate the ways that Gabbard is one of the increasing numbers of people whose values, either implicitly or explicitly, resonate deeply with the principles and sources of Unitarian Universalism. I'll take crypto UUs where I can can find them. We Unitarian Universalists also value reason and science equally as much as the world's religious traditions. From that angle, about three weeks ago, I said from this pulpit that irrespective of who I think should win the White House, my educated guess, based largely on statistician Nate Silver's 538 blog for the New York Times, was that President Obama would win a second term, just based on the arithmetic. Since the 2008 election, I, like so many others, have found Nate Silver to be an indispensable source for separating the signal from the noise in the incessant flurry of polling data. Now that the results are in, we can see that in addition to picking the winner in all 50 states, besting his 49 out of 50 slate in 2008, Silver was also the closest among the so-called statistical aggregators uh, to picking the two candidates' popular vote percentages. All told, he missed Obama's total by just four-tenths of a percentage point, and Romney's 48% by just three-tenths of a percentage point. In the 11 swing states, silver was closest to the final margins among the candidates in seven of them, and also had the best overall record, missing by an average of just 1.46 points in the 11 states. And he's trying to be nonpartisan. He's just saying, I'm just following the math. So on election night, as the emerging results continued to show that Silver's predictions were impressively correct, one response I saw on Twitter was, This may be a good time to concede that Nate Silver is without any shadow of a doubt a wizard. (laughs) And I bow to his nerdy wisdom. Silver's own response was, This is probably a good time to link to my book. More seriously, journalist Jonah Goldberg tweeted, If Nate Silver is right, does this mean that the climate is in fact changing? (laughs) And that the earth is more than 6,000 years old? Silver's nonpartisan correct predictions are another in a long line of victories for science, for empirically based predictions, and for evidence-based belief systems. Now, having noted some of the many reasons that some of you have been celebrating this past week, I also recognize that some of you may well have important reasons, from the political to the personal, that have not left you in a celebratory mood this post-election Sunday. And having quoted President Lincoln earlier about the challenge of allowing the better angels of our nature to emerge, allow me to say a few words about the relationship between Unitarian Universalism and conservatism. Now, admittedly, Unitarian Universalism Universalism is often explicitly known as a liberal religion. But liberal religion is not synonymous with the Democratic Party. Now, that involves a whole other sermon about what the words liberal and conservative, where they came from, and what they mean. But, as I've said before, the liberal turn in religion is the move from a top-down hierarchical religious authority to an emphasis on personal experience as an equally important criterion of authority. What you know to be true based on your first-hand experience, not what me or anyone else tells you second-hand. And sometimes a free and responsible search for truth and meaning leads to conservative values. Indeed, at this past year's UU General Assembly, there was a workshop of conservative UUs. At that workshop, the Reverend Nancy McDonald-Ladd, the minister at River Road, UU, and Bethesda, made the important point that to assume or desire that all UUs are liberal would be mirroring the exact political partisanship and brokenness present in the world outside our doors. And are we not called as faithful, courageous people to something higher than mirroring the worst of the world around us? More than 58 million U.S. citizens cast a vote for Governor Romney. 58 million. So irrespective of the blue states and the red states, there is that popular vote. That's a significant portion of our electorate that must be taken seriously. And as even that classic liberal John Stuart Mill said about the importance of conservatives, a party of order and stability and a party of progress and reform are both necessary elements of a healthy political state and a healthy political life. Now, those of you who read my sermon manuscripts online may recognize those last two passages. If you go to our website, you can click on the sermon link at the top of the page, and you get the director's cut of the the sermon. So there's more there, there's footnotes, there's appendices, so if you haven't gotten enough on Sunday morning, you can always go there and listen to it, or or get the expanded version. So those two last two passages about conservative UUs were uh, part of the uh, director's cut of my last two sermons respectively, but I cut them out of the version delivered aloud due to time constraints, because I don't want to keep you here all day. However, as I've listened this past week to the agony and the ecstasy in response to this past election, it seems important to emphasize that Lincoln's call for the better better angels of our nature to emerge is a challenge not only for conservatives to be more open-minded and inclusive, but also for liberal individualists to recognize the lessons they can learn from conservatives about community and tradition and other conservative values. Not that liberals don't care about community, but There's much more to be said about the better angels of our nature that will will be needed to create a truly purple America that blends the best of the red states and the blue states' values. But for now, I'd like to say a few words about going forward in the wake of this or any election, whether your candidate or your issues won or lost. Because if you're the ones happy now, the time will probably come when the pendulum will swing. As I reflect on the frantic energy, the massive tension, and the more than $6 billion spent on in the build-up to this year's election day, uh, words came to mind from Thomas Merton's 1968 book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Merton was both a cloistered Trappist monk and a person deeply committed to social justice and deeply in touch with many social justice activists through letters and people that would visit him at the monastery. But his immersion in contemplative prayer gave him a perspective that many activists on the front lines for social change came to find invaluable. Because he had a perspective they didn't have being a step back from the front lines. Merton wrote, There is a pervasive form of modern violence to which the idealist, the idealist most easily succumbs. Activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, that is to submit to violence. The frenzy of the activist neutralizes his or her work, because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes the, root, the work fruitful. Now, there are many reasons to be deeply grateful for all the activists in this election cycle who helped make this world a more peaceful, just, and compassionate place. But now, in the wake of the election, Merton's words invite us to examine the ways in which even our best-intended activism and activities can sometimes be unintentionally violent to ourselves and to those around us, given the frenzy of our over commitments. Even more pointedly, he challenges us that at a certain point, overwork, rather than just accomplishing more and more results, tragically tends to undercut and neutralize our hoped results from our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom that makes the work fruitful. At this time of year, our pagan friends remind us that our recent celebration of Halloween is not only a time for dressing up in costume, handing out candy, and hosting an auction, it's also Samhain, one of the eight spokes of the pagan wheel of the year, halfway between fall equinox and the winter solstice. We're a little more than halfway between the days of equal parts light and dark, and the upcoming winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. As you feel the wind blowing on these colder, darker days, ignore this aberrant weekend, which though I'm enjoying it, uh, can you feel the wheel of the year turning toward solstice, turning toward the darkest day of the year? In the wake of the election, perhaps an invitation for you this winter, which is rumored to be a bad one, Maybe the invitation is for you to discern the ways in which you have unintentionally allowed yourselves to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects. In, Merton wor- in Merton's words, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. Yesterday, many of you were here for what's known as a ministerial startup to talk about um, how to, how we can partner together to move forward. And I will certainly confess that I don't have all this figured out. Uh, we're still very much working on what is that healthy balance between what's my work, what's the board's work, what's your work. And that's also a question you have to sort out in your own lives. What is really your work to do and what is not your work to do? In a few moments, I'm going to ring the bell and invite us to enter into another minute of contemplative silence. As you listen to the bell's reverberation, I invite you to be present to what emerges for you to do, and perhaps you'll be surprised, what emerges for you to do in this coming present moment. Perhaps you'll be led to spend a few moments quietly savoring one of the landmark moves towards standing on the side of love in this year's election. Perhaps you'll feel led to discern what's yours to let go of as the winter comes and in the wake of this election, that your life may be less frenzied, less violent. Perhaps you'll be led to simply be fully present to this present moment, here and now.